Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International, right here on USA One, TojiNet, Pararex, uh, Astronet, Planet Paranormal, and whoever else would be in play. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, the unbelievable. Yaddy, 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 yaddy. With me all the way from across the pond is the gold standard in ghost hunting, according to the Wall Street Journal. But what the hell do they know? Mr. Steve Parsons. How much Fourth of July wine have you had? Whatever. Anyway, um, I, I have to apologize in advance to our listeners because any loud noises that they hear during tonight's show from West Wales is because the French Air Force are currently knocking seven kinds of out of the bombing range two miles away. So oh, cool. Might, so you might hear the jets flying around and loud crumping noises. It's not this. It's not from the computer. It's the French Air Force wreaking their revenge for us exiting Europe last week, I think. Yeah, I don't blame them. So anyways, can bomb craters be haunted? Oh, ooh. ah, now. The re- yes, um, but I'm not the person to ask, but I think the Loch Nagar crater does have a ghost. Um, so we Really? Yeah, absolutely. The Loch Nagar crater was is was the biggest crater created in World War One by uh, members of the British Royal Engineers Mining Department uh, when they tunneled right underneath the German front lines on the first of July, nineteen sixteen, and uh, there were seven mines in all in total, but the biggest being um, sixty four thousand pounds of explosives that blew a three hundred foot wide. 75 foot deep crater right underneath the German front line. Oh, yeah, actually, I remember that. Yeah, so yes, there is a haunted crater, bomb crater. Yeah, we had our own little bomby crater in uh, the uh, American Civil War. The uh, Union came up with this bright idea to blow up a cr- the defenses, and they did the same thing mined underneath of them, planted all their explosives, blew it up. And what a disaster it turned out to be because they had this great crater and all the Union soldiers rushed down the crater. And, of course, they had to rush up the other side of the crater, which <laughs> were easy, easy picking. So, yeah. Blowing things, say, yeah, blowing things well. up or mining under them, blowing things up is actually quite an old thing. It goes back to, uh, well, King John, uh, one of our early medieval kings. He uh, mined his way under a castle. And blew the tower down. Um, and actually, even before they had explosions, they, they undermined yeah. them and uh, did it as well. They used yeah, to uh, uh, light fires under it and burn the uh, supporting timbers and stuff, so it would collapse as well. Yeah, but John also added a touch of gunpowder for effect. I know, that's a good idea. Yeah, but as I say, uh, the person... He was a fl- flantangagist, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And what a messed up group that was, I'll tell you that much. You've been watching the History Channel again. Yeah, you know. You, should, you we, should we talk to our guest tonight? Eng- England would have owned half of France if they were still around, but he messed it up. 
Anyways, yeah, I want you to introduce yeah, our yeah. guest. Yeah, <laughs> before, before he gets bored and wanders off to do something much more important and interesting. Yes. Uh, tonight, yeah, tonight, because he's, are you still a member of the Ghost Club, Ron? Which Ron? You. Oh, me? Because our uh, guest is called Alan, so if I say, are you still a member of the guest club, Ron? I'm obviously not referring to our guest, am I? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, <clears throat> mine expired, so I will have to rejoin Bum. Right, because the, the, the person, you better be very nice to our guest tonight, because he is the chairman of the Ghost Club. Uh, oh, excellent. Council member for the uh, Society for Psychical Research. Um, and a ghost hunter himself, par excellence, uh, Alan Murdy. Good evening. Sorry about all the chaos at the start. That's all right. Very good evening to you. Very nice to be with you. Yeah, You're very nice. Friend. And, and I'm, I could be called Rob. <laughs> yeah, total, totally envious of you as, as director of the Ghost Club. I mean, that's that's amazing. One of the oldest ghost hunting groups in, in the world. And, Indeed, uh, we can trace our roots back certainly well into the mid-Victorian era. So it's a great privilege to me to be uh, just one in a long line of distinguished uh, uh, holders of office. I can't say I'm as distinguished as some of the people in the past, mm -hmm. but it is, a, it is a mantle I feel a great honour to carry on my shoulders. I, I believe Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a member at one time, wasn't he? He was, yes. He he was involved with the Ghost Club. There was also the Irish poet W.B. Yeats was oh, yes. a member for many years. And some of the more famous figures in the history of psychical research and uh, ghost hunting were privately members of the Ghost Club, sort of in the period between about 1882 to uh, 1936. Uh, people such as Harry Price, Nanda Foda... Wow. and Frederick Flybond. And it tended in that period to be a rather secretive organisation. It, it only had um, something like 84 members in just over a 50-year period, but uh, they, they rather kept themselves to themselves. At times, they almost behaved a bit like a, a, an occult society. Mm. And some of the seriously spiritualist members, when one looks through the old minutes of Ghost Club meetings, which are preserved in the British Library now, uh, one finds them discussing the distinct uh, possibility, they thought, that deceased members of the club were coming back to meetings. And really? They, they would refer to uh, members present, visible and invisible, and things such as that. Hmm. Uh, they yes. were, many of them were WB very Yates serious spiritualists. A hmm. um, member of the Golden... Well, one of the Golden Dawn Orders himself, wasn't he? Um, the poet W.B. Yeats. Yes, Yeats was muddled up with all kinds of uh, <laughs> esoteric and unusual uh, societies and activities. Spe speaking of illustrious former ghost investigators, ghost hunters, um, I remember it growing No, let's not talk day. about me. Let's talk about our guest, please. Uh, okay. Well, actually, we're not even going to talk about our guest. We're going to talk about somebody far more illustrious than even Alan, um, oh. the gentleman who in I think was probably most responsible for inspiring the way I hunt for ghosts myself. Um, in 1973. Oh, uh, I know who it is. Let me guess. Let me guess. Oh, God, go on then. It's a vet's husband, isn't it? Yeah. 
1973, uh, Andrew Green, who was at the time one of Britain's leading ghost, ghost hunters, uh, published a book called A Practical Guide to Ghost Hunting, or Ghost Hunting, A Practical Guide, uh, which I <clears throat> borrowed from the library. I still have the copy. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah. But it's been reworked because it's a very important, very valuable book, and um, the gentleman uh, who did a lot of the work on that is is Alan. So, Alan, just for the sake of our listeners, because Harry Harry Price usually steals the limelight, um, who was Andrew Green? Well, Andrew Green, um, as you said, was one of Britain's most active uh, ghost hunters for uh, a 60-year period. And he he began hunting ghosts in 1944 in wartime London, and he carried on right up until his death in 2004. And it's very much to thanks to Andrew, um, I I think that what we perceive as the way to go about ghost hunting today, it reached uh, the 20th and the 21st century, whereas. Um, there were ghost hunts were taking place uh, for many years before Andrew Green started. I, th- I think you can say that modern ghost hunting probably begins in about the 1860s or 1870s. What was noticeable about those attempts uh, at ghost hunting at the time is that they almost always ended up as attempts to contact spirits of the dead. Uh, and they ended up with seances and Ouija boards and things like this. Whereas Andrew Green broke very much with that tradition. He said if we knew that ghosts were the spirits of the dead, well, there really wouldn't be much point in investigating them because we'd already know the answers. He took a much more sceptical line on survival after death and on the existence of spirits, but he was convinced that there were genuine ghostly phenomena and he linked this up with um, the developing science of parapsychology which was uh, reaching something of a peak I think in the 1970s and he sought to investigate ghosts and hauntings from a scientific perspective his work coincided with the ready availability for the first time uh, of tape recorders, cassette recorders, video cameras, all these things were starting to come onto the market. And it was thanks to an enormous amount of work, including his book, various promotions, work with different professional bodies and organisations, that the idea of ghost hunting with equipment and trying to record results was very much brought into the public eye for the first time. Previously, psychical research had tended to be the preserve of learned and academic scientific societies who tended to often keep their reports confidential, keep them uh, to themselves, Uh, whereas Andrew actually believed in promoting these techniques to the wider public. He was very keen to present the idea that ghosts and paranormal phenomena that they've been experienced for thousands and thousands of years, they're actually part of normality. They're actually, although we don't understand them, they are actually part of the human situation. They are found in societies all over the world, and they are occurring on a daily basis. And he he sought to put the whole subject of ghosts, apparitions, very much in uh, a a scientific perspective and as something that could be readily investigated and experienced. 
um, like yourself, Steve, he, he had a great influence on me. I, I'm very glad that I read his books first before I read really any others in the field because it made it clear to me that ghosts and ghost hunting can be addressed and approached as a serious um, occupation, as a serious field of research, uh, a form of research that could be taken from many different perspectives. Do you think with with your work updating, um, re-editing Andrew's book, um, I mean, it's been... Uh, 40-something years since it first 43 came years, yes. Um, do you think the, the ghost hunting has changed much in that 43 years? Well, in terms of the um, equipment that can now be deployed, it's, you know, it far exceeds the capabilities of equipment uh, and is much more readily of, of affordable than the sort of things that people were going out with in the 1960s and 1970s, hoping to detect or record traces of ghosts. What I think makes the book particularly important, however, is it, it doesn't focus on equipment and instrumental recordings. They have a place, but what it em emphasises is the importance of, first of all, common sense in approaching the findings or results or recordings that you get and thinking about the whole subject rationally. And secondly, it also emphasises the importance of witness reports and actually interviewing and discussing the experiences with people who've perceived ghosts or haunting phenomena. Because we need to remember that we don't actually have ghosts as such to study. What we've got is an enormous amount of witness evidence, serious testimony collected um, over well over a century and ongoing today it's primarily human beings and perhaps other animals such as dogs cats horses domestic mammals that seem to respond and experience ghosts whereas equipment um, it has to be said is not as effective as one was once hoped in picking up anomalous activity alan can I, have a I have a question for you alan you just made a statement that that animals can pick up ghosts better than equipment. Yes, I mean it's um, it's a long-standing traditional belief that um, dogs, cats, horses are particularly psychic or sensitive and can witness or see apparitions that they can pick up hauntings. Um, quicker than human beings. That that's the traditional folkloric belief. There was Has there ever been a study on it at all? Well, there was an interesting experiment done back in 1971 by a parapsychologist called Bob Morris, who um, did an interest. He later became the uh, professor and chair of the Kirstler uh, School of Parapsychology at the University of Edinburgh. But Bob Morris was working in the United States, and he did an interesting experiment at a, a supposedly haunted house in Kentucky where there had been a murder. And his experiment consisted of taking a dog, a cat, a white rat and a rattlesnake in turn into the room in which the murder had taken place. And they, they took in the dog, first of all, and the dog immediately started barking and reacting to something that the human observers couldn't see in the room. They repeated the experiment with the cat. The cat jumped up hissing and seemed to focus its attention on a particular chair 
in the room. It, it, it was the only room in the property that the cat seemed to show a reaction. They brought in the white rat. That just seemed to scurry about, didn't seem to um, respond at all to anything. There was no anomalous behaviour. They then brought in the rattlesnake, and immediately the rattlesnake went into a, a defensive position, um, as though it was preparing to, to strike. And it was, you know, it was an interesting experiment, which mm-hmm. suggested that perhaps, on some level, other species were picking up on some kind of haunting or presence, something unusual in that particular room. And it, it certainly opens up the possibility to a wide range of um, exper- ex- uh, experiments for psychic researchers who are also animal lovers to see if cats, dogs, <laughs> other species maybe, can pick up or respond to, uh, to haunting presences. Sorry for laughing there. I just had visions of the next episode of Most Haunted. Uh, but they've already done that. Uh, we do have psych- We do have teddy bears stuffed with EMF meters being. Yeah, but that's constantly. not the same. We're actually talking a, a living creature versus that. I mean, it, I, I know that back in the seventies when I did research on uh, biofeedback devices for uh, plants, that we could get reactions of plants to different stimuli so you could probably carry this down into uh, flora as well yeah it's 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 possible i mean ultimately before we get on to the subjects of of ghosts and paranormal powers we don't really understand an awful lot about everyday consciousness about life itself there's a endless range of mysteries which you know the limits of biology um, psychology neurophysiology we are dealing with really complicated and currently unexplained phenomena every day we don't properly understand ordinary perception before we even get on to extrasensory perception so it's it's part of a very big uh, field of the unknown i mean what parapsychology and psychical research should be about is trying to bring those experiences uh, together and unify them with our existing scientific knowledge such as it is with that with that in mind alan how um, there are some elements within parapsychology uh, particularly those in anomalous psychology who consider that study of the paranormal in any shape or form is a complete waste of time and effort. Yeah, that's true. You know, we, we, we have um, so, some psychologists and academics have been quite vocal in the criticism of those who are engaged in psychical research. Uh, I don't know what that was. I don't, I don't think that was the French. But, I, I mean, is that, is that a good response? Um, is it... Or is, or is their thinking deeply flawed? In, t- in terms of anomalous psychology... Yeah, in terms of... Yeah. I mean, you know, I, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with, with the work of anomalous psychology, um, and there have been a number of critiques. Now, what I'd say about the anomalous psychology uh, perspective is, yes, it could <laughs> or can do a good job in explaining low-level paranormal activity. Uh, Where it fails to explain what is going on is when you get onto the larger-scale physical phenomena. Anomalous psychology talks about 
er witnesses make errors uh, we may make we may perceive things in, in a faulty way and really they try to pin the problem the problem of psychic experience they pin it down to basically the bad wiring of the human nervous system uh, workings in in the brain common errors mistakes um, you know the, the everyday faults that we we are um, you know, all prone to forget things, we misobserve things and so on. Where it falls down, however, is with the physical evidence for psychic phenomena. I'm thinking here of a major poltergeist activity. It doesn't explain fires. It doesn't explain the large uh, movement of large objects. Uh, it doesn't explain the fact that these odd noises can be recorded on tape recorders. These things are objective real physical events for which there is no immediate explanation when it comes to investigating these things my, my background is as a lawyer and i've worked in worked in courts and tribunals proving things for years now you cannot get a laboratory standard of proof in the outside world there are lots of things that we cannot prove to a laboratory standard in scientific terms. But when we look at, so we have you know, other disciplines such as forensics, we have archaeology, we have um, different ways of examining uh, experience outside the laboratory, uh, different ways of testing, finding out the facts. The courtroom is quite often where human events which are disputed are tested. If we use the same standards of proof that we use in courts and tribunals, then I have to say that there are many psychic phenomena which you can consider proved. Anomalous psychology does not explain, for example, cases such as the Enfield poltergeist, where you've got multiple witnesses and also, importantly, instrumental evidence. One thing I'd also say about anomalous psychology is it's very, very good in academic terms. It's very good as a, a producer of thought experiments. It's, it produces theories. But in terms of actually using these theories in the world at large which, of course, is the business of the courts and tribunals, is I have to say that most of anomalous psychology makes no impact whatsoever. Um, if anomalous psychologists are correct, there ought to be all kinds of defences for road traffic accidents and crimes. And you could, in theory, discredit any witness evidence using the approach of an anomalous psychology. But what you have to do is look at the actual facts and you have to look at all the facts, and then you have to build a picture from it. I certainly you know, welcome the interest of anomalous psychologists and the academic approach, but funnily enough, you never get to see them being called as expert witnesses, because it's not the only way we prove disputed facts in courts and tribunals. And the same applies to psychical research. You may have all kinds of ideas about how the brain works and how it can go wrong and how it can misperceive things but it won't explain a fire that breaks out spontaneously it won't explain a movement of furniture or of objects which is captured on videotape something else is going on apart from the human mind you've got a real objective physical effect i'm sorry that's a slightly long-winded answer but isn't the standard answer then 
<clears throat> was presented by the psychologist when you know, when you give them this 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 evidence they they resort to shouts of fraud and hoax I mean, that sounds familiar they, Steve. well, well no, yeah, they, they have to be a lot more careful these days i mean i think of the late morris gross who was a veteran psychical researcher um uh, who had the simple answer at enfield he said okay you're accusing me of fraud or hoax we'll go to court put your theory up against what actually happened they always back down what why do you think that that uh, the parapsychology psychology is so afraid of confronting the paranormal well i i'm not sure if it's it's fully afraid i mean the more um inter i mean parapsychology does get discussed in psychology textbooks even though the majority of psychologists um, publicly will say that they aren't in you know aren't don't give it airtime or room time or lecture time i think it's it i think the reasons are complex it actually is an interesting psychological area in itself part of it is actually ignorance of the work that's been done uh, for well over a uh, century by <laughs> including by many famous psychologists uh, in history and even even for example sigmund freud who mm. is presented as a complete uh, materialist by followers of Freudian psychology and psychoanalyst today. In fact, Freud wrote papers on dream telepathy. Uh, Freud is presented as a materialist, yet his first paper in English actually appeared in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. Uh, William James, the great American founder of, psych the psychological, of psychological science in the United States, was actively involved with psychical research. So it's partly an ignorance of psychology's own history. Uh, there have been, uh, there have been, and remain many psychologists who are actively involved with the field. But quite often, I mean, sometimes said psychical research has a great history behind it. Well, if we looked at the evidence um, accumulated, not just in in Britain, the United States, but also in continental Europe. All, all, all over, all over the, the world, where scientific research has been done, there's a huge body of evidence which I think a lot of sceptical psychologists are ignorant of. However, thinking about this myself, I also think there is deep down in human beings maybe a, a resistance towards psychic phenomena. People can find uncertainty uh, in life unsettling. Uh, they, they, people like to be certain. They like to be sure. If you ex accept the possibility that paranormal events can take place, that can be very psychologically unsettling for some people. And Absolutely. you know, on, on an emotional level, it can be. Um, it's it's a difficulty for some people, and a lot of people like. It's not just true about science but also religion politics there are some people who like to be convinced that convince themselves they are absolutely right alan you have to hold that thought right now because uh, we've after you have to take a break you're listening to ghost chronicles international right here on tojinet pararex planet paranormal and wherever else we're being carried who knows maybe even the ghost box uh our guest is alan oh boy i just blew his name alan Birdie. <laughs> Ready. <laughs> and we'll be right back at discussing you, the ghost hunting. 
Ghost hunting guide, a practical guide. Ghost hunting, a practical guide. We'll be right back. Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be. With remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased, we'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place an oasis in this hectic world. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk gooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Bear X family. Whoa! What do you mean? Yeah, they're, they're just—they're quiet. That's all. Well, I couldn't hear for some rustling uh, going on um, from VZ. Um So, welcome back to part two of Ghost Chronicles International. For some reason, I nearly said the next generation. Uh, and our very special guest tonight is the chairman of the oldest ghost investigating... Well, actually, it wasn't, but uh, not investigating as such, but the oldest ghost organization in the world, the Ghost Club. And a council member for the Psychical the Society for Psych- I think I've been at the Fourth of July wine as well. The Society for Psychical Research, Alan Murdy. Now, Alan, you, you've updated and re-edited Andrew Green's book, and we spoke a little bit about that. Now, that book, uh, you and I understand the, the value of it, but it is entering into a crowded marketplace of books. Uh, why? Why should people go out and buy it? Well, as I said, I, th- I think one of the important things is what tends to get lost in the excitement of ghost hunting. And this, I have to say, seems to be very much a, a male techie thing. Um, there's lots of people who are very enthusiastic in their ghost hunting efforts, um, going out with all kinds of sensitive equipment and gadgets, but they don't pay enough attention to the actual detail that can be supplied by people who actually see ghosts. 
and actually experience them. And as you, as experienced um, ghost hunter yourself, knows that uh, quite often, as a, as a former general secretary of the the ghost club used to put it, the uh, dear commander Bill Bellers. Um, he said quite often when the ghost hunters arrive, the ghosts seem to disappear out the window. And quite often you'll arrive at a location where all kinds of remarkable events um, have been reported. Quite often good witness testimony exists. But when you sit there and you sit there and you sit there, nothing happens at all. It's almost as though the phenomena avoid being watched. And this, of course, then takes us back to the psychology and minds of the witnesses, the people who experience. When you actually ask people, and this was a point Andrew Green made over many years, when you actually ask people who've seen a ghost, what were you thinking about at the time, then usually they say, well, nothing in particular. Certainly they weren't thinking about ghosts. Absolutely. And it's in that sort of... Um, period where the mind is open that many of these experiences take place um, my own view is that equipment does have its role but perhaps it's only really effective in cases where you are getting physical phenomena basically poltergeist activity something is happening in the material environment which is recordable and measurable when it comes to apparitions we don't have a lot of of good instrumental evidence, photographic evidence or any other sort of evidence to confirm that there is an independent apparition. What we do have, however, is witness testimony. We know that um, different people... Excuse me, Alan, but so you're basically saying there are no good pictures of ghosts going all the way back to the lady, brown lady of Raynham Hall and... Early... Yeah, much as much as I would love to endorse ghost photographs, I, I mean, I'd love it if they were true. Personally, I've come to the view, and I can't say it's the definitive answer, one mm. way or the other. Um, there are one or two anomalous pictures which um, I may or may not show something odd. I personally think the evidence, photographic evidence for ghosts, is is poor almost to the point of non-existence. There are only a small number of photographs which I think may show something um, credible. And, in fact, it's been like that for well over a century. Um, back in 1875, one of the leading members of, uh, of the Ghost Club, a man called the Reverend Stainton Moses, who was uh, also a medium, um, totally forgotten today, unfortunately, but he was, he was never proved to have acted in fraud. 1875, he wrote about his frustrations with ghost photography. And this is 1875. By 1875, he had already personally examined some 600 alleged photographs of ghosts and spirits. And he said, with all but a dozen... He said they show nothing that we can really say is anything at all. He said there were people out there who would recognise a sheet and a broom as the dear departed, as a family <laughs> member. And there was only, this, this is 1875, 600 ghost photographs then. And, and this was a period when fraud in spirit photography was, a, was a, an industry. Rampant. It was an effort, right, yeah. Yeah. Not so, from Mumbler on. Yeah. 
I mean, the early Society for Psychical Research by the 1890s um, had come to the... Many of its leading members had come to the view personally that ghosts are primarily hallucinatory phenomena. Now, when we say hallucinations, we think of, you know, people seeing things in states of intoxication or uh, illness or delirium. No, they, they use the term hallucination much more... Uh, much more um, closely uh, and and a much more closely defined concept of a visual experience which is taking place in the mind but can actually have some reality because we've got to remember that when people see ghosts more than one person at a time may see the same ghost or you may have people on different occasions who see the same ghost even Mm -hmm. though they're separated uh, in time so it's more than just an imaginary image. There is something going on which appears to be real on some level. The example I'd give, I suppose, would be dreams. Now, many of us, most of us, experience dreams, yet there is no way we can photograph a dream, but they clearly do exist, certainly on some level. Furthermore, you can actually say there is no scientific evidence for dreams. Uh, if you had a dream last night about meeting uh, uh, Barack Obama, there is no way scientifically to prove yeah, what you dreamt last night. There is no. I mean, we have dream well, reports. You, and we all have. We all have experiences. You can show we, we, that we there's can, brain activity at night. Yeah, we can actually prove a dream. Yeah, we can. You know, definitely capture brain activity at a certain period of time. And that's an interesting analogy because. Science readily accepts the existence of the dream state. Yes, I mean, I mean, this, you can tell that the brain chemistry, things are happening in the brain at night when you are asleep, and there's rapid eye movement. But we can't actually tell what the person is dreaming about. True. We rely we, on the person waking up to tell yeah, us. Anyways. And we're reliant, of course, on the frailty of that of that uh, subjective account because dreams, even even uh, a memory of a dream, uh, fades away very very quickly. I'm I'm unfortunately one of those people who can't recall dreams very often, and even when I try to, you know, I know from experience that two or three minutes uh, into the waking state and the dream melts away. Uh, or yeah. memory of the dream melts away. So it's a very, very, uh, you know, we are reliant entirely upon, you know, a very subjective account, much like we have from, from witnesses to ghost investigations. And there is also a surrealness because people then start to question their own uh, experience. And that, does that, does that color the, the uh, um, subsequent account of their experience, Alan? Speaking well, of your legal capacity. Yeah, in in terms of in terms of your dream, the only way you're really going to re- remember it is by writing it down at once. That's unless you're one of these very lucky lucid dreamers, it's likely your dream memories will fade, as you say, very quickly. I mean, what is noticeable about apparitions, however, is that people who actually see an apparition um, have no doubt about it. Generally, they know what they have seen. And this is yeah. this is actually leads on to one of the reasons I'm suspicious about so many ghost photographs, uh, and the fact they probably show something just purely mundane. I find that when I talk to somebody who's actually seen a ghost or an apparition, they just tell you their story. 
quite often they may describe something that they saw that they took for a real person at the time and they can exp- they can detail all kinds of features um about the the figure that they saw or whatever mm-hmm. and describe its clothing its appearance and so on when we look at a lot of the material that's put forward as evidence of ghost photographs, it's ambiguous. It's not clear what you're looking at. And quite often people have taken a photograph, then looked at the photograph afterwards and said, oh, there's something strange there. And they almost want you to confirm that what is in the picture is something ghostly. And this is the thing about, certainly about a lot of modern ghost photographs, they look nothing like the detailed uh, descriptions that witnesses give when they have seen a ghost. Not all ghosts look like... Alan, I actually have a question in regards to that, because there are many photographs, and and I know I've received them myself, where you will get a photograph and you will have a person standing there who supposedly was not there when the picture was taken. Yet we have no way of proving or disproving that that is a ghost or not a ghost. And and it's clear as day, just as a witness report. Yes, I've received those sort of photographs. And and then you you have to look more closely at the witness testimony. And sometimes you were just saying that witness testimony is, is the primary evidence that we have that ghosts exist. Yes. Yes, I would say that. So aren't we in a, a quandary here where we have a witness testimony and yet we're going to discount the witness testimony and yet well, we can't have it both ways? Well, you, what you have to do is, is make the best you can of witness testimony. Witness testimony is not 100%. Absolutely. Sometimes witnesses are wrong. Equally, on occasions, they are correct. One of the things, for example, is if you look at the length of time between the image being identified the fo- uh, as anomalous and mm-hmm. when the photograph was actually taken. I remember being sent an interesting um, picture which definitely showed the figure of a girl stroking a pony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, the, the lady who sent the photograph in said there was no girl stroking the pony then. I then asked her the question... How long ago did you take this photograph? I know, that's the problem. And she said, four years. Yeah. <laughs> now, with the best will in the world, um, it, it's difficult to remember even things that happened last week sometimes in our busy, yeah. busy lives. So you, you have to weigh it up um, with, with all the other factors in the same way as you, you, you'd analyse any form of witness testimony. It, do you think because we, you know, you know, people like Steve Parsons are, are so skeptical and they're so willing to come up with an alternative expedition that we're we're actually uh, missing some of the true evidence that we're collecting? No, I don't think so. I I, I think skepticism is is necessary, um, but you mustn't be so skeptical that you've made your mind up before you even look into it um as i said what i i think one needs to do is look at the totality of evidence that you get in a particular case um the other area which interests me and this this very much comes from uh, my own um legal uh work and experience and training personally speaking i don't find my own experiences of paranormal phenomena that convincing 
on a number of occasions I have had experiences which I think may have been something paranormal, something ghostly. I don't know what they were. Personally, I, this may just sound say more about me, I don't find it that convincing. What I actually find convincing, most of all, is when we look at the testimony of witnesses spread over many years, many miles apart, it's the striking similarity you find in witness testimony. And this ties up with a rule which operates both in Great Britain and in the courts in the United States, what's known as similar fact evidence. And it's been used for, since the 1890s, to establish proof of guilt, particularly in cases of serial murder, homicides, and also in sexual offences. Most murders, remember, we have no witnesses. But if you go to... So if police start digging up the floor of someone's house and there's you know four or five bodies under the house and they then check where the householder lived before and there's four or five bodies under the house, you've got suggestive evidence that the person who who is the common factor between the two has got some connection with with those deaths. And the same with sexual offences, where you might disbelieve the word of a single witness, or you might not find it reaching a standard that you think you could sustain a conviction on, when there's a number of witnesses separated over many miles, many years apart, these so-called historic abuse sexual offences cases all pinpointing the same person, that collection of testimony becomes very powerful proof. And I think it's much the same with psychic phenomena, particularly the poltergeist phenomena. When we look at accounts of poltergeists spread around the world in very different cultures, even including in cultures where they don't even have the word poltergeist, we can note very striking similarities between the patterns of the phenomena what people are reporting, what they're experiencing. I I came to this conclusion doing some research um, back in the late 90s in Colombia, in um, Latin America, and I was looking into um, ghost stories in Colombia, in in Bogota, and I came across accounts published originally in the 19th century of stone-throwing poltergeists in Colombian towns I'd never even heard of, except... They didn't have the word poltergeist in 1839. They certainly don't. They still don't have the, the word in uh, Spanish, um, Latin American Spanish today. Mm-hmm. It was called something else. But when you actually looked at what was being described, it was a poltergeist bombardment of stones on a family house. And it wasn't that it was anything striking uh, in terms of poltergeist. The, the importance of it, it was identical to every other account that one would find of stone-throwing poltergeists from Australia to Italy to England to North America. And there it was buried in an obscure Colombian text which had never been translated or even noticed by anyone um, from England or America before. And even predating um, the, the 
interest in parapsychology, in politi- the naming of poltergeist phenomena at all. You know, out here in West Wales, I'm, I'm always mindful of Gerald of Wales's accounts from the 12th century, mm. where he describes stone-throwing demons, which when you read his, his accounts, when he, he took the trouble to actually go and investigate them for himself, because he was a man of religion and, and curious, uh, and he went and he spoke to the people, um, uh, at the house of a Lydia de Stackpole, and you're reading a modern poltergeist case. The same as with the drummer of Tedworth, the same with countless other hundreds and hundreds of accounts down the, down the centuries. And it's, it's the collection of these accounts that gives us, um, you know, as you say, it's important that we do collect these accounts together because it does provide us with this wealth of information. And that one, that was a sort of crude attempt to bring us to another way of collecting, uh, the modern way of collecting accounts together, and that's via the internet. And you're active there too with europaranormal.com. Uh, which is one of those uh, go-to web uh, web pages that I use uh, to keep me abreast of uh, the ever-changing news and developments within the paranormal world. But EuroParanormal.com is is all your work, isn't it, Alan? That's right. Or it's 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 work that I've you know I've condensed or crystallised from from other sources. Yes, it's uh, it's an attempt to put some of my thoughts and writings. Because I think there's a number of approaches. Do we have to change the name now after Brexit? Not at all. No, we're, <laughs> we're not off the coast of Africa in Great Britain. Uh, uh, furthermore, we, you know, we we still we still remain. Uh, I'll still stick up the, the the point that British ghosts are still the best in the world, um, and uh, we are part of a wider European culture which shares many of the sort of same core beliefs about ghosts and hauntings and so on as we do in the British Isles. So, so, so I th- I, and I think there's a lot of lot of testimony, which good testimony that was collected in particularly in France and Italy in the early part of the 20th century, which needs to be brought out to a modern audience as well. So, how much I mean, is that the thinking behind Euro Paranormal that you to present? Um, because it's it, it's it's I kind of see it as a as a modern news clippings sort of service. Well, that's, um, that's that's one possibility. I'm, I'm developing the website at the moment. Um, what I'm, I'm I'm keen to do to do is is try and present the the case for ghosts and the paranormal seriously, and to have it looked at from a number of um, cultural and scientific perspectives. Because there's a wide range of because the paranormal touches on so many aspects of life, there are it's open to examination study from many different directions and I, I think I'm very keen on cross-disciplinary studies and within this I mean there, there may be material that people who are specialists or experts in a particular field can extract um, new insights on the information I also think that as as well I, I compare it in a way to to astronomy there's a small number of professional astronomers doing very detailed, um, very advanced, often highly mathematical astronomical work. But there's still a very important place in astronomy for the serious amateur. Um, And many of us are just amateurs in this field. We don't earn our livings out of psychical research or parapsychology. But there is an important role that can be played by um, amateur researchers who study the literature 
um, to a, you know a professional level, and then actually go out and do research and experiment. The great split, not just in psychical research, in, in but in many fields, is that you have. It's always said that the academics uh, know everything but do nothing, and you have the amateur, the field workers, who who know nothing but do everything. And it would be good to try and bridge that gap between the, the two communities. I mean, in certain fields, such as astronomy, such as archaeology, very important roles are played by non-professional researchers. Um, you know, huge amounts of important work observations, studies, excavations are done by people who don't necessarily have professional qualifications in parapsychology. But if you're qualified in something else, you can nonetheless bring those skills, the knowledge you've got from those those disciplines, and, and which you, you do yourself, particularly in, on the technical side, Steve, uh, you can bring that into play in, in the field of psychic research parapsychology. Do you think uh, that Modern ghost hunting has completely disconnected with and lost all credibility in the eyes of parapsychology and its academics and the counterparts. No, not not at all. No, not, not the discussions you have with them after midnight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not, not at all. I mean, they, they, they all say. I mean, going on ghost hunts with professional parapsychologists and psychical researchers. You know, they don't believe until until it starts getting late or something. No, no <laughs> seriously, no. I don't, I don't think it has um, lost lost credibility. The, the unfortunate thing is that, relatively speaking, there are very few people involved with parapsychology and psychical research and academia as a whole both in north america and great britain is going through a fairly lean period and they have to you know they are they are victims of all kinds of administrative and political and educational decisions and have to uh, hold up their wooden walls as best they can to keep going and that's that's not just in this field that's in a lot of subjects um so I, no, I don't think it's it's um, it's lost lost its credibility. Again, it comes down to um, there is just simply so much to learn about the subject, so much to to, to know, and we can't expect um, professionals necessarily to know everything uh, uh, about every everything that's going on. I mean, in terms of expertise, there's a couple of subjects in the law, and I'd like to think in one or two areas of psychical research that I think I might be classed as an expert. But let me say, my definition of being an expert is I have reached the point where I know how much I do not know. There's an awful that's an lot... E that's an excellent definition. Because, I mean, one of the things that uh, you do here, often levelled against researchers by other ghost hunters, is, um, when, you know, if you question their ideas... Um, is that there are no experts in the paranormal, which I guess is kind of true because you can't have an expertise in something that's so basically misunderstood or not understood. Um, but as you rightly say, bring, you can bring other areas of uh, expertise, life experience, qualifications to the task. 
Indeed, and and you know that that is that is one of the great joys and challenges of life. If we all knew everything, it would it would all be rather dull, wouldn't it? It would be rather predictable. Um, that, that, you know, there there are so many fields, not just in in psychic research and parapsychology, in every field of of scientific research and endeavour, there are disputes, there are controversies, there are arguments about evidence, there are different competing points of view. Um, I mean, same exists in in the law, which is my professional background. Um, The only thing is, um, I would say, compared with some of the disputes that occur in psychic research and the paranormal and and with some of the other sciences, lawyers can't really get that worked up personally about (laughs) different arguments. It's very hard to get worked up about a differing interpretation of the local government finance act 1992 mm-hmm. for instance so law- lawyers tend to you know just accept that people take different points of view and of course we've got these wise characters called judges who are supposed to know the answers yeah, but, yeah. Uh, speaking, but often when you go characters um, yeah the higher you go up the court system uh with a dispute about the meaning of the law the more likely you are to meet a judge who will say well, we don't know what the answers are. Can you tell us? Well, the judge has spoken, and we're right up against the clock. Uh, but people will want to, no doubt, buy Ghost Hunting, a practical guide. The I know I want to. Well, you, you, I mean, there are two choices, but I would recommend the revised 2016 edition, uh, edited by Alan Murdy, authored by Andrew Green. Whereabouts can they get it, apart from, at the moment, Amazon? Well, it's uh, going to be available from the publishers themselves, who are uh, academic publishers called Arima, and I'm hoping it will start going into into bookshops uh, in in both Great Britain and the United States. Uh, at the moment, it's it's just literally coming out online, but uh, I do hope it will become more widely available. And, of course, you have the website, which is Europaranormal. Europaranormal.com, yes. Exactly. So uh, what's, what's uh, quickly in 30 seconds, the, has the Ghost Club got anything exciting coming up in the next few months? Oh, we always have exciting things coming up. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we, we, we have to wrap it up because the music yeah. will be playing in a second. Yeah, yeah so Ron will have to join, rejoin now. Yes. So, Alan, we want to thank you so much for joining us. I had actually some other questions I wanted to ask you about some of the legal cases where uh, ghosts were used in trials. And I thought that might be interesting, but maybe perhaps another time. Another time. Well, thank you very much. I've I've very much enjoyed taking part. All right. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps it up. Tune in next week from Steve and Ron. Good night. God bless. God bless. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night, deliver us good law.